This week, we have a special guest. I'm very excited. Uh, she and her husband and their family live in Goshen, Indiana. Uh, she's the author of a couple of really beautiful books, including one called The Ministry of Ordinary Places. And we invited her to teach us uh, because we're so captivated by uh, the vision that they have as a family for living the way of Jesus on the ground in the everyday reality of their neighborhood right where they are. Uh, it's a message that really resonates with Stop and City Church, and we are thrilled that she's here to teach us. So will you please welcome Shannon? Shannon Martin. Good morning, everybody. I, I almost accidentally said good morning on Thursday evening, so um, today it works. So it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I also forgot my readers Thursday, so Jason said, you know, Thursday will help you kind of work some of the bugs out, and I'm finding that to be true. <laughs> But keep your expectations managed at the same time, if you would. <laughs> I'm going to open up with a, a short passage from scriptures from the book of Psalm. as just kind of our, our call to worship. My people right now are just getting ready to worship at um, St. Mark's United Methodist Church in Goshen. And I'm thrilled to be here. And it's always, um, I, I choose my Sunday my Sundays away from my community very carefully because it's so important to, to worship together in our body. So this was a no-brainer for me. I'm thrilled to be here. But I'm also thinking of my family and my church family back in Goshen. We usually begin our services with, with a little scripture reading. And so I'm going to do that here with you today in, in St. Mark's honor, I guess. And because this is just a beautiful, beautiful passage, I woke up this morning and, and went out my front door much earlier than I'm typically used to doing on a Sunday morning. And the moment I opened the front door, the sky was pink, like the air was pink. It was just beautiful. Um, and you're going to hear through our time together why the sky has just become pretty important to me. So this is a great way to, to start us off. This is Psalm chapter 19. It's up on the slide there for you to read along, verses 1 through 4. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. This is God's word written for me and for you. So, I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, and, and Jason kind of gave a little bit of an intro into this, but I'm going to be sharing with you basically just a snapshot of the journey my family has been on, and what I would kind of encapsulate as learning to endure through times of complexity, through a life where we have learned to not choose comfort as easily and as readily as we used to, through, um, through just life low to the ground, low to the ground where we have been planted. And so as we're talking this morning, I want you to, to, to hear what I'm saying, but to also be careful to not think too hard about what my on-the-ground circumstances are um, and just really focus on what does life look like for you on the ground? 
What does life look like for you in your place? So a handful of years ago, I found myself in, in really a time of, of pretty deep questioning. I was questioning kind of who I was, why I was where I was, you know, just kind of the, these questions that, that I think really come and go and come and go throughout life. I am learning in my 40s now that that's kind of what life is. It's just these periods of questions. I've got three young kids at home, one big kid at home, and we'll talk about them just for a minute. But my younger kids, you know, I've got, I've got a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old right now. And particularly my 14-year-old is having these, these kind of, you know, existential crises that come and go. And once, once he gets one resolved, he kind of thinks he's got it all figured out then. <laughs> and of course, what we know is, I don't know that that ever happens. I think we're always moving in and out of them. I was questioning what my purpose was. And I'm, I'm that sort of person that is, is drawn to, more, maybe more than others are, but far more than my husband is drawn to this kind of thinking. But I like to kind of know. I've got a lot of questions. I like to believe that there's this purpose that kind of wraps around everything I do. I don't know what to say about that. It's just the way I'm wired. But this confusion landed kind of in this valley after a lot of transition in my family's life. So we were just coming out of this, this time where over a handful of years, almost everything about our life changed. And that sounds very dramatic, and it kind of was, quite honestly. Um, we had just, in, in a short period of time, we had moved from out in the middle of nowhere and what we thought was sort of our dream farmhouse. And, you know, we, I had this, this vision of our young children kind of, you know, they, they just would be running barefoot through the pastures, and this is the life for me. This is what we were going to do. We had transitioned out of that home pretty unexpectedly into where we live now and where we, we have lived since then. Our neighborhood in Goshen, Indiana, a place that up until that point I had been completely unfamiliar with. I'm not from Indiana. I'm not from this area. But we moved from the country into the neighborhood, into a very ordinary, kind of shabby, pretty ignored, overlooked, neglected neighborhood. My husband and I had both shifted out of our careers in federal politics. We had lived in Washington, D.C. for a time. And then back in Indiana, we continued that work. And so we had, had both transitioned out of that political work. My husband transitioned into nonprofit work. I, at that point, was not working as much. Um, we had brought, our, our family had, had begun to grow through adoption, which was a big surprise to us. And so we had brought our third child home um, from South Korea. He was 18 months old, and he was a heartbroken baby in a lot of ways. And so we were, we were continuing to learn what does it look like to, instead of making a wide detour around pain, what does it look like to just walk straight into the middle of somebody else's pain and, and wear it as your own? You know, the prayers that we prayed this morning carry the weight of the burdens around you. We were just starting to learn what that looked like. 
Not long after that, we adopted our fourth kiddo. Um, he was 19 years at the time, 19 years old, and he was incarcerated at the time. And so it's a very long story <laughs> with a lot of layers and, and a lot of beauty. And I wrote a lot of this backstory down. I'm just like breezing through it to just kind of get you caught up. But I did write a lot of this down in my first book, if you're interested. So just to kind of catch us up, we had, we had moved our home. We had dramatically changed our jobs and our income. Our family was growing in ways that continued to surprise us and challenge us in a lot of ways. My husband, at, at some point during this, this you know, couple years of extreme, like, earthquaking transition through our life, he ended up transitioning out of nonprofit work, so to speak, and became the full-time chaplain of the Elkhart County Jail, where he is still working now. So that, that same facility where we had visited the first time to visit our son Robert, he was now working there every day. Everything was new about our life during this time. Our schools, our church, our community. We were beginning to see the world differently. We were beginning to understand that God did have more for us and that God's more for us was going to look like less. I had no frame of reference for that. I only had a, a reference of God that God's more always looked like more. And so it took some time to navigate this thought that perhaps God's more, his true abundance to our eyes was, and to, particularly to the people around us was going to look like less. We were beginning to understand what it looked like to choose a way that did not appear to be paved in comfort, in peace, in similarity. You know, I, I, I do think that we can carry peace in the midst of upheaval and in the midst of transition, but it doesn't necessarily feel like peace all of the time when you're in the midst of it. And we were learning these things. After we had settled in, after the dust settled a little bit, after the adrenaline of all the change was starting to wear off. So, you know, at this point, we're a couple of years in to our neighborhood. We were delighted by our neighbors immediately. We were starting to understand in ways that we could not have understood before that we had both lived very much under a bubble. You know, we didn't grow up, my husband and I didn't grow up near each other, but our lives were very similar. Our child's, childhoods were very similar. And so now that we were in a place where, um, for one thing, we just had people all around us. We had both lived and grown up in the country with neighbors, you know, our, my neighbors were soybean fields for the most part growing up. We had actual people around us. These people were surprising to us. We had a lot to learn from the people around us because they did not look, live, believe exactly as we did. And so we were thrilled to be where we were. We were excited, we were um, willing, we were, we were at peace. And at the point that all of that adrenaline started to kind of flush out of our system, what I found was that I was maybe just a little bit addicted to upheaval. I was a little bit addicted to this like, okay, now what? Okay, now this is familiar now, is that okay? Okay, I like it here. Is that okay? Or does that mean it's time to go again? Do we move to a different neighborhood? Do we move to a, um, 
you know, uh, do we take another step, another weird, wild step? Do we do something different? Because what I was feeling was that after all that change, my life once again felt very ordinary. It was just a new kind of normal. It was a new kind of ordinary, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. We were learning in every way possible what it looks like to live as a neighbor. And while we were starting to learn what does it look like, you know, we were being captured and captivated by the gospel, which for the first time, we were understanding God's tremendous heart for living as a neighbor. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor. I had this compulsion building in me that loving my neighbor meant doing something. You know, if we were going to live in this neighborhood, it was great that we were happy there. It was great that we were settled in. But what was I supposed to do? I just wanted something to do. Every time I was kind of asking that question, what I was hearing from the Lord was two words, pay attention. It was not what I had in mind. <laughs> I did not know what to do with those two words. What did it mean? And furthermore, you know, I was just stuck in this place of like, now what? You know, I, I couldn't comprehend that we had gone through all of this change just to be living a normal life and enjoying it. It felt like something was missing, and I continued to ask that now what question. That question ended up being answered for me, and it, can, it, it keeps being answered. It never stops being answered, but it started to be answered with two things, an example and a roadmap. These two things were used profoundly in my personal life as I began to and continued to lean into what does it look like to really orient my identity around neighbor. And, and just as a side note, I think a lot of us, including myself here, we hear that word neighbor and it just kind of does something to us. We're, we're drawn to it in some ways and in other ways, it just makes us uncomfortable. I am coming into a decade of really immersing myself in what does it look like to live as a neighbor. And it still does that thing to me when I, when I say this word. I do not know what it is, but I think it's worth paying attention to. So if you're feeling some of that, it's okay. I'm feeling some of it too. I started to notice as I was reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, these four books of the Bible that in many ways kind of um, mirror off of each other. In a lot of ways, they're telling the same stories, maybe in slightly different ways. Sometimes they're not telling the same stories, and that's interesting too. But these are the books of the Bible that give us a picture of what did Jesus do when he was living in skin on the earth. My youngest son, Silas, is 11 years old, and just this year at Christmas, he said, you know, we were talking about something about Jesus being born in the Christmas story, and, and Silas said to me, oh, so it's kind of like God on the ground. And I was like, yes, it is God on the ground, and thank you for that. I will use that forever now. Thank you, child. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us God on the ground, and I wish there was so much more. I have so many more questions about what Jesus was doing. There's so much that we just don't know, and that's kind of interesting to think about. But what we do know is that he was over and over and over again going low and then going lower. So where I had spent most of my life doing the things that I thought I was supposed to as kind of a good Christian woman, you know, I was taking steps up the ladder. I was taking jobs only if they offered me more. I was moving into homes only if they were bigger and nicer. I was climbing, 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 and Jesus was doing the opposite. And that's something that I had to reconcile. I began to see that Jesus was choosing people like physically choosing them, choosing them with his time, which I think most of us can agree is like the biggest commodity we have. Like who are we spending our time with? Who are we eating meals with? Jesus was choosing people who were at the margins for one reason or another. These were people who were ignored or overlooked or even hated and despised by other people, particularly other people in the church. This is who Jesus was choosing. And so then I started to notice You know, my heart was shifting over this this new understanding of, of God on the ground. But I started to notice these phrases throughout the Gospels, things like, as we're reading about these stories of Jesus, he saw, he heard. Sometimes it would say something like, as he was going, he noticed, he felt a hand reach through the crowd and touch his sleeve. So God on the ground in so many ways was being led in his ordinary life through his senses, his five senses, his body, through sight and and hearing and taste and touch. He was many times being described as being on the way to another place, and then he would see something, he would hear something, and his plans would change. This is how God God on the ground, Jesus' ministry was, was sort of being led and directed. He said things like, taste and see to his friends who traveled with him or the people that gathered with him. He was saying to them often, stay awake. This was our example. So I I think we can agree that Jesus, during his short life on the earth, is our example of how we can choose to live. We can choose to live in this weird way of Jesus that makes little sense to the world around us. We can choose this way. This whole idea of paying attention was starting to kind of crystallize a little bit for me. I was starting to understand it a little bit. And one of the first things I noticed after this was kind of starting to absorb into my bones was that, you know, I'm, I'm asking these kind of why here, why me, this is all great and all, God, but like what's the big picture here? I'm asking these questions. I'm really deeply wanting to get to know my neighbors. You know, at that point we knew some of them. We knew enough to know that we wanted more. We were building relationships with the people immediately near us and present to us, enough that we knew that we wanted more of that. And one of the things that I noticed 
on this grand quest to pay more attention in the most literal sense, was that these people that I wanted to get to know were walking to school each morning. They're walking their kiddos to school. A lot of the people in my neighborhood don't drive for many different reasons. They're walking to school in the rain, in the sun, in the snow, and I'm driving right past them in my minivan. And so one, one morning it just hit me that maybe it didn't have to be that way. As I'm paying attention, I'm noticing new things. And so we decided, I decided, in a way that was really pretty disconnected from this spiritual plane, I decided that just as a practical decision, we should be walking to school. I will not tell you how close the school is to our house. I won't do it. Don't ask. I'm not going to tell you. But it's sufficient to say that it probably could have dawned on me much sooner than it did, that we could have been walking to school. And so we just made that change. We just started walking. At the time, I had three kids at the elementary school at the end of our street, but I'm not telling you how many blocks away. <laughs> we began walking this short distance every morning. We would bundle up. You know, somebody was always crabby. Sometimes that person was me. Sometimes it was one of my kids. It was not a perfect or this very ideal or beautiful scenario, but we would walk to school, and I would drop them off, and we would, I would alone walk back home the same path over and over and over and over again every day. I did not somehow connect it to this bigger vision of paying attention, but I just started to notice the clouds in the sky. I started to notice the trees. The first year that, that I committed to walking to school every day was the first year, and I've been a Midwesterner my whole life, it was the first year that I truly found winter beautiful. And I had grown up, you know, on the farm, and then we had lived on the farm, and, you know, everything was very, what I would have thought at that time as being very picture perfect. And I remember moving into this neighborhood and thinking, well, Okay, you know, this is great. I'm happy to be here, but I'm just not going to see anything beautiful anymore. Very embarrassed to admit that, but it's true. My lens was shifting. And as I was making that short walk back and forth, I mean, this neighborhood that I was already really beginning to love and find beautiful in so many ways, so many obvious ways, I started intentionally hunting down something beautiful on that walk every morning. And let me just say, February and March will test a sister <laughs> on finding something beautiful. Right now, it's still a little pretty outside. There's still snow on the ground. But think about a week ago. You know, everything's just kind of brown. The sun's not shining. The skies are gray. A lot of times, there's not even, the sky doesn't even feel worth looking at. Sometimes I'm sorry to say, but it's true. But I just got very intentional. I've got to find something beautiful. And so I would find that beautiful thing, and I found it every single day. And sometimes I found it by looking up into the sky, looking at the, the tree people. <laughs> the trees were really, in some ways, kind of starting to come alive to me. They were looking different as the seasons changed, and I was drawn to this. So sometimes I'm looking up. Sometimes I'm getting very low to the ground, like kneeling on the ground. I had various neighbors say, did I see you this morning, like crouched on the sidewalk? And I would say, yeah, you did. 
I'd get low to the ground and see a whole different landscape, a whole different perspective. And because this is the day that we are in and because this is who I am, I would take a picture of that beautiful thing and I would post it on Instagram. It's just what we do. (laughs) The cloud drama that was one day menacing and the next day poetic was just changing my heart for how I was seeing God and seeing him vibrantly alive in my place and in creation. What I started to understand is that you can't love what you don't know. And you can't know what you don't really, really see. This is why it matters so much to pay attention. As I was finding my place more beautiful, I was starting to love it more. And as I was starting to love my place more, I was starting to love the people around me even more. And as I continued to love my neighbors more and more and more, the best thing by far happened. And that was that I was more and more and more loved by them. So this idea of living as a neighbor, we know that this is a mutual relationship. We know that we can't neighbor someone. I don't want to be neighbored. I'm guessing most of you feel the same way. But we get to be in relationship with each other. We begin to grow this mutual, this mutuality where we trust each other. We, you know, I I talk to my kids about this a lot. Being a neighbor means having someone's back and knowing that they have your back. I was paying attention and it was changing me. But The culture around me was also changing during this time. And it was changing rapidly, and it was changing in ways that I could not keep up with. It was changing in ways that made me cry. It was changing in ways that stressed me out. My perspective on the world was changing because I now, for one thing, was living in a neighbor rich with immigrants. This is something brand new to my life at that point living among my beautiful, courageous immigrant neighbors during the period of time that we were in was changing everything for me. This is what happens when we sit very close to people who might experience life in a different way than we do. It changes us. This conflict was beginning to loom large, though, and I remember starting to have feelings now and then of like throwing my hands up in the air. I can't, I can't fix any of this. These problems are way too big and I am one woman and there is nothing I can do about this. And I'm just not the type of person that goes there quickly. I tend to be kind of a, a bulldozer. I don't lose I don't lose heart easily. And so when I was finding myself in that place of like, cynicism, why bother? Everything is terrible, the world is burning down. It worried me. At every point that I got to that low place of just cynicism and I give up, the solution was always to get my head up out of the clouds where all of this stuff was constantly swirling and continues to swirl with even greater intensity today to pull myself out of those clouds and get very low to the ground where I personally have been planted, 
where you personally have been planted. Get low to the ground. Everything that I was kind of stressing about up here existed in some way down here. But it existed in a way that, that was personal. It existed in the lives of people who I love and who loved me back. That's a very different place to operate from. In this turmoil, I began to be drawn in the Bible to the Old Testament prophets. So if any of you are feeling some of that, like, the world is just bad, it's scary, it's unfair, it's unjust, all of these things I would say are true, the prophets might be your friend. They were certainly a friend to me. And so I, I dug into books of the Bible like Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos. I mean, I was finding Bible verses that just spoke so profoundly to things that are happening right now. In particular, I landed on a passage of scripture in the book of Jeremiah. It's in chapter 29. And I'm going to just go ahead and read a few verses. It's up here on the slide, and we're going to leave it up there while I talk, because we're going to camp out for just a little bit on these verses. I talked about the example that I was given in the life of Jesus, God on the ground. This became my roadmap for what it looks like to live a rooted life as a neighbor. And I'm just going to pick up here in verse 5. And I kind of... Dot, dot, dot. I have kind of an ellipsis in some of this, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it kind of straight from the slide there. This is what God was telling his people who had been exiled into Babylon. So these were people who were displaced. These were people who were thrust into great discomfort and extreme unfamiliarity. These were people who were not at all happy to be where they were. And I think we all can relate in some small way to that feeling. These were people who were asking these questions of now what, why me, why here? They were asking these questions on repeat. And this is what God, through his prophet Jeremiah, says to them. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. I was stunned to discover these verses that were so clear and so concise and so tangible and so literally applicable to my everyday ordinary life. So we're gonna just pretty quickly kind of jump down through them and, and just share just a little bit about what I have begun to learn by this short text in the book of Jeremiah. Verse five, build homes and plan to stay. What would it look like if we committed today to our place? Some of us have lived where we live now for a very long time. I mean, at this point, I've lived in my home for over eight years. It's the longest I've lived anywhere in the past, I don't know, 20 to 30 years. Eight years is not that long, but to me, it feels like a pretty long time. 
Some of you have lived where you live much longer. But there's a difference in, in remaining somewhere, kind of by default maybe, or just because it's where you live. There's a difference between doing that and committing to your place. Jill Briscoe is a, is a preacher who I love, and she said basically, unpack your suitcase. So maybe we've lived somewhere for 10 or 20 years and we haven't really unpacked our suitcase. And when we do, when we just decide, until I'm told to go, I will choose to stay. I will commit to this place. That is a shift. That shifts our mindset. That shifts the way we are paying attention to our place. I have to give a little shout out to plant gardens and eat the food they produce because I'm really stuck right now in the imagery of the garden. And that's kind of come out of this journey of paying attention. But I just can't think of anything more hopeful than a garden. Even those of us, I'm not particularly good at planting gardens, but I try every year. And throwing a handful of seeds into dirt is maybe the most hopeful practice. It is belief. And God is saying that that matters. Verse six, I'm gonna summarize. You know, it's, it's a little bit longer than what I've typed out here, but marry and have children, multiply, do not dwindle away. I'm gonna summarize that as draw a wider circle. Mother Teresa has a quote where she says, the problem with our world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. Because I'm an adoptive mom, I have this sort of natural understanding that, that family is not bound by last names or DNA or even legal documents. Family is so much broader than that. So as we're committing to our place, as we're starting to push ourselves out of our comfort zone, out of our bubble, put ourselves out there to get to know the people around us, understanding that it matters, that we, that we exist with these very people for a particular reason, to love and be loved by them. We can draw the circle of our family much wider. And then, and then we get out of this, this mode of categorizing people as like, well, they're friends and they're family and they're neighbors. We begin to sort of belong to each other. Verse seven says, work for peace, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you. So work for the peace and prosperity of the place where I put you. This is kind of, in my mind, sort of that, that advocacy piece that becomes so important, especially as we are choosing to spend time with people who are going through some stuff. Their life is hard in ways that we don't understand. So many of my neighbors are either enduring generational poverty, they are trying to rebuild their lives after incarceration, they are trying to survive and endure and find some freedom from addiction. These are most of the people in my ordinary everyday life. They teach me to pray, they, they show me the face of God. But it's, it's also important that I, that I hold their hand with them and that they hold mine and that we walk towards justice together, work for the peace and prosperity. 
The, the thing that I want to point out here is that that verse comes after the, the relationship verse. So advocacy, divorce from relationship, is unfinished. It's incomplete. So we build these relationships. We begin to advocate for the peace and prosperity of the place where we've been put. And then finally, pray to the Lord for it. I love that this comes after work for it. Like, get dirty, get sweaty. Put your bodies on the line for the people around you. And then, yeah, pray for it. So we can't stop with thoughts and prayers. We've got to do the work. And then we get to to add in that spiritual piece that's so important to pray because it's welfare determines your welfare. So if my neighbors are not free then I am not free either. If my neighbors are not well, if my neighbors are not satisfied, then I'm not either. My welfare is bound up with theirs. Living as a neighbor looks like living awake and available. And and I really think that's kind of it. We don't have to make it so complicated We get to invite people into our space, into our home, eat with them as much as possible, as often as possible. My family has sort of developed this new rule. You know, most of our life exists in just a short area, a small area. Most of our life is very walkable. Our church is right there. The only way to get to St. Mark's United Methodist Church, as far as we are concerned, is through our dining room. So we're not going to invite somebody to church, to Bible study, to anything kind of related to that if they have not first had a meal at our dining room table. We're just not going to. And we've come to see this fruit kind of bear out because that relationship piece just comes first. It has to come first. Living awake and available means that my ordinary life right now And this is kind of in flux. You know, things change and we go through different times. For me, my ministry looks like giving rides to people, going to meetings, unfortunately. (laughs) This is the Lord's work, sitting through meetings. Listening, speaking up, answering the phone. That's a hard one for me. (laughs) I wish we would all just agree to just only text each other. But a lot of my neighbors really prefer calling me on the phone. And so answering that phone can be a really meaningful act of obedience for me, quite honestly. Being willing to have my life interrupted. In particular, and I get asked this question a lot when people say like, okay, yeah, I get it. I kind of want to get to know my neighbors. What do I do first? Without exception, my answer is ask them for help. Be the needy one. Show up needy. We have got to embrace our own lostness and our own need. And man, when we go to a neighbor and ask for something, and it could be any number of things, but like go to them needy, what that says to them is that they are free to come to you in their need. Ask for help. My ordinary life looks like making soup, It looks like showing up as I am, inviting people in to my space as it exists, as 
in a messy house with myself looking a wreck, committing to showing up as I am. That is a hard, hard thing. This is, this is what I speak about, this is what I write about. In particular, the Ministry of Ordinary Places is all of this. Like, what does it look like and what have I learned? Living rooted low to the ground in our place is our endurance plan. That's how we endure. This is how we sing a love song for the long haul, by getting close to the ground in low places just as Jesus was, willing to be interrupted, willing to be uncomfortable, believing that small things are the only things and that all of it counts. This is slow work and all of it counts. Trusting that making the world better for one person makes the world better. So now I'm gonna close with this benediction. I think, I think we'll be able to pop it up here on the screen for you. I'll just read it off of that. So this is a benediction that I wrote for you today. May you go out into this cold day warmed by the fire in your own bones. May you come to see walking shoes, soup spoons, minivans, and wrinkled hands as worthy tools for the kingdom. May you crave low places, the messy, the boring, the overlooked, the complicated. May you grow comfortable with grit in your teeth. May you see God's presence in the moon, God's glory in the clouds, and God's goodness in the faces around you. And may you find your shelter in the untamable garden of community, God's kingdom on earth, right where you are planted. Grace and peace be with you. Thank you.